Today's Bible reading is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, until chapter 5, verse 11. Let's listen to God's living word. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of other criminal or even a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And... If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who, who also will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power for ever and ever. Amen. When I was at uni in Wagga, a guy I knew became a Christian. 
And this guy was just devouring the Bible, absolutely reading massive chunks that were amazing. The uni holidays came, and then after the holidays, I, I tried to give him a call, but I couldn't get through. And eventually, I bumped into him on campus, and I knew something was wrong. He wouldn't look me in the eyes, and I found out he'd given it all up. And the reason that he'd given it, out, it all up, I found out, was that his dad had grabbed his Bible and torn it into pieces and said, if you want to live in this house, if you want to be a part of this family, you can't be a Christian. It was devastating to hear that you know, he'd been treated that way, but it was even more devastating that he'd given up Jesus, that he hadn't considered him worth it, following him. Now, I'm not judging him because I've never faced what he had to face but it really is devastating what he lost. Right near the end, in 5.12, Peter says why he's writing his letter. He says, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying you, testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Remember at the start of the letter, we talked about how it's like Peter takes them up to the ridge line and he says, there's your homeland. There's the finish line. There's when Jesus returns. And here at the end, Peter's saying, stand fast. Don't give up. Don't throw it all away. We've seen over the weeks as we've looked at this letter why they'd be tempted to give up. They're suffering for being Christians. And suffering raises a whole heap of questions like, where's it coming from? Is God sending this? Why is he allowing this? Is God really in charge? Is it really worth it? Or is it better to just give up? So in this final part of his letter, Peter keeps beating the drum to stand fast, to keep going, even through suffering. One of the last things that Peter says, but the first one that we're going to look at today, is that standing fast till the end means resisting the devil. Have a look at it in verse 8 of chapter 5. There's more to the picture than what we might think. Peter says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You have an enemy. Did you know that? The most dangerous enemies are those you don't know you have. So it's scary, isn't it, that humanity's greatest enemy is thought to be a complete joke, an imaginary figure we've outgrown. The French poet Charles Baudelaire wrote that the devil's best trick is to persuade you that he doesn't exist. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters and he wrote it as if he was a senior demon writing to a junior demon telling him how to tempt people. And he says, Screwtape says to Wormwood in the book, if any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights And persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. If you have a a comical picture of the devil in mind, well, the Bible agrees with you that that is an unreality. The real devil is subtle and is smarter than us. So Peter says to followers of Jesus, us, most of us here, be alert and sober-minded in order to resist the devil. 
And yet I suspect most of us would barely ever give him a thought. A friend of mine, his church that he used to go to, taught that there was no such person as the devil. I mean, how dangerous is that? That's like leading a school camp in a lion sanctuary and telling the kids that, that there's no lions there or something. You know, and then one of them gets up in the middle of the night out of the tent because they need to go to the toilet. They're completely unprepared. The best thing to do with an enemy is to know them, their movements, their tactics, their goals. And Peter says that being alert means being aware that the devil's not only out there, but he's out to get you. The devil prowls around, looking for someone to devour, waiting for the right time to pounce. Now, sometimes Christians don't deny the existence of the devil. In fact, some Christians, they seem to blame him for everything. You know, there's a demon under every rock. The demon is causing every sickness. They have a bit of a rough conversation and the devil is the reason rather than their poor social skills. Well, they can't find a car park and the devil's trying to frustrate them. But notice the goal that Peter says the devil has in verse 9. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. His sole aim is to stop you standing firm in the faith. Suffering itself is not the devil devouring us. Suffering just puts us at extra risk of being devoured. The way that the devil devours someone is by getting them to give up standing firm. The devil's trying to stop us trusting in God till the end. Some Christians acknowledge the devil is there, but they fear him way too much. Did you notice all that Peter says is required? Not some special ritual, not even fasting. All we need to do is resist the devil, which we do by standing firm in the faith. For the people that Peter's writing to, their suffering is the thing that's putting them at risk. But what about us? What puts us at risk? Suffering is a factor for us too, but I reckon in a slightly different way, because my friend's story that I told at the beginning, that's the exception, isn't it? You don't hear a whole heap of that in Australia. I think the reason suffering is a risk for us is because, generally speaking, we have a fairly low threshold for suffering. I mean, let me explain what I'm talking about. How do you feel about being labelled like this? You're unscientific, unscientific, irrational, repressed, stupid and naive for believing the Bible, misogynistic, homophobic, fanatical, a fundamentalist serving a violent God of genocide and hate. Now, I personally really find it hard being labelled that way, but that's how some people will label us. And if I'm alert, and if I'm sober-minded, then I'll know my weak spots, and I'll know that I'm sensitive about these things. And so the devil is likely to press these buttons. Perhaps what they say really is true. Perhaps... I really am all those things. Perhaps there really is no God after all. Perhaps it's not worth it. And so begins a slow drift that I'll eventually attribute to my enlightenment when in actual fact it's the brilliant 
that evil work of the devil getting me to believe his lie. And where did it all start? Well, it all started because I have such a low threshold for suffering. But I actually don't think suffering is our main risk factor. I think for us, the devil is more likely to stop us standing firm by making the most of our ease of life, our abundance, luxury, that turns easily into greed or addictions, and no longer loving and living for God. So the teenager who suffers at school for being a Christian and then gives it up because it's too hard to follow God, that's the devil devouring him. But so is the 50-year-old man who makes a thousand decisions, wrong decisions, in the wrong direction, indulging himself, you know, who walks down a path of having an affair and wakes up one day and looks at himself in the mirror and thinks, oh well, I guess I never really believed it anyway. That's the devil devouring him. Peter tells us we need to be alert and sober-minded and resist the devil by standing firm till the end. Well, the devil's behind the scenes, but suffering isn't. And so Peter says to them, standing fast means that even through suffering, you commit yourself to God and you continue to do good. And we saw this point last week and we saw it even the week before. But Peter goes on to give some new reasons to back up this conclusion. And it takes a bit of concentrating, so work hard to follow along. Therefore, this refers back to last week about how Christ suffered to bring people to God, but now Peter gives a different application that comes from Christ's example. He says, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, the attitude of being prepared to suffer for God's glory. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Whoa, really? That's a big claim, isn't it? Whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Why should we stand fast even through suffering? Because if we suffer, we'll be done with sin. What does Peter mean? Now, he's obviously not saying jump on your skateboard after church and head down to the skateboard park because you're guaranteed to suffer in the body if you do that. And all suffering makes you done with sin. You know, when you look at the context, this is clearly suffering for being a Christian. But is Peter saying that if you suffer for being a Christian, you'll never sin again? Well, let's keep looking at it. Look at verse 2. He says, As a result of suffering for God's glory, like Christ, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Peter's point is that if we're prepared to suffer for God's glory, something about the hold that sin has on us is broken. See, sin is actually rebellion against God's right to rule us. Sin is a choice to embrace what offends God. Now, Peter's saying that we have the choice, that if we have the choice between denying God and so not suffering, or following God's way and suffering for it, and if we're prepared to choose God's way and suffer for it, well then when it comes to the choice of to live for evil human desires, sin, or to live God's way, then why on earth wouldn't we also choose then 
to follow God's way when we were prepared to choose it, even when it meant suffering. The same love of God that drives us to suffer for Him rather than deny Him is the same love that drives us to reject evil human desires rather than reject Him. Peter's not saying here that we suddenly become perfect and will never sin again. But he is saying that if you're prepared to suffer for God, then the hold that sin has on you is slipping. And at the very same time, the hold that God has on your life is growing. This is another reason why we should stand fast through suffering. Peter then goes on to describe the evil way of living that comes from rejecting God. He describes the way that they used to live. Have a look at it in verse 3. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, that's indulging in whatever we want, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, that's partying, and detestable idolatry, worshipping things other than God. That doesn't sound all that different to 21st century Australia, does it? In places. In fact, it probably describes what many of us were like at some point in our lives. But it's not who we are anymore. We're God's chosen people, a holy nation. But do you envy people who live this way? That friend that I talked about at the beginning, who gave up following Jesus... His friend became a Christian a bit later on. And do you know what he said to him? Don't delete all your pornography off your computer, you'll regret it later. Now, I I asked this guy at one stage what he was living for now. And he pretty much said that he was living for money. He was working at Woolies, and that was what was driving him. Pornography and greed are very sad alternatives to what we have in Jesus What we have is far, far better. Even in this life, it's a more satisfying way of living. But Peter says it's not just about this life. Look at verse 5. But they, people living for human desires, they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Peter reminds them of their fellow Christians who have now died, their friends. When they were alive, they heard and they believed the gospel. They realised that just like everyone else, they deserved to face judgment. But because Christ died for them, They turn to Him. They put their trust in Him. And they've escaped that judgment. And so now that they're dead, they won't ever face God's judgment. Instead, they live. Peter is saying to us, stand firm in God's grace. Don't throw God away because people have a go at you for not embracing their way of life. Don't worry about people's assessment of you. Worry about God's. And how does God see us? As forgiven, as children. And so we should want to live for Him. Now, because of time, 
We've got to skip a couple of Peter's reasons for standing firm, even through suffering. You can see them there in verse 7, the end of all things is near. In verse 12, suffering is not surprising. In verses 13 to 16, we actually share in Christ's sufferings and it shows that we belong to Him. But we've got to skip these reasons so that we can talk about something that's a bit harder to understand, which is this next reason for standing fast even through suffering in verse 17. Have a look at it with me. Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Stand fast, even in suffering, because it's God's judgment on His household? I mean, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? We tend to think of judgment as a negative thing. No one wants to be judged. But here, it's clearly supposed to be a positive thing. God's judgment on His people is positive because it's a judgment that they are His people. It's got nothing to do with condemnation. God's judgment says, yes, they are my people, and yes, they are living my way. Or it says, yes, they are my people, and no, they're not living my way. So it's a judgment that results in either approval or discipline. And as hard as it sounds, our suffering as Christians might well be part of God's loving discipline. Now, you get a very faint parallel of this, even in being a parent. You know, you could protect your kids from every difficult situation, but it wouldn't be good for them. So sometimes we let our kids bear the consequences of their actions. They don't remember to do their homework the night before. So instead of letting them hurriedly do it that morning in the car on the way to school, you say, no, you're not going to do it then. You're going to face your teacher and bear the consequences. As hard as it might be for us to understand, God is using even suffering to teach us, to discipline us. And there are benefits even in such awful situations. So what do we do when facing suffering for being a Christian? Verse 19, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. It sounds hard. And it is hard. And this brings us to our final point. Stand firm, standing firm till the end means serving God and each other in humility. Have a look at verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. If we're going to stand firm to the end, we need to help each other. Above all, we're to love each other. That's pretty important. We're to be a people who love each other even when we're unlovable, even when we mistreat each other. In other words, we're to be like a functional family. You know, how many times do you treat each other wrong in a family, but you don't let it stir up conflict, or at least not for long, when you love each other deeply? And here at t and &E, there are times that we treat each other wrong. You know, we say something that's a bit harsh. We might leave someone out. We might let each other down. But because of love, we don't let it stir up conflict. 
doesn't mean we always overlook things. Sometimes we do. But sometimes we'll talk to people, lovingly confront each other. And when we're confronted, we listen. And if needed, we apologise and change. Peter goes on to show a bit more what this love looks like in verse 9. He says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was just a month or two ago that it came up in our passage. And I asked you, when was the last time that you had someone from here around for lunch or dinner? Well, Peter's bringing it up here again. So let me ask again. Since that time, how many of your church family have you had around? And how many of those were the type that needed a lot of love to cover their kids, the awkward pauses, the strange opinions that they have? This is a way that we can show real love to each other and help each other stand till the end. The next way of showing love is in verse 10. Peter says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Has God given you gifts, abilities that you're just sitting on? When you could be using them to help God's people stand firm till the end? Now, it's not our right to use our gifts. It's our responsibility to use them. If we can serve others with our gifts in a way that ends up with God getting the praise, it's our responsibility. Look at verse 11. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory. So when I speak, I should be careful that I'm speaking the very words of God so that you're served and God is praised. If you walk away from here entertained, engaged, inspired to make changes that come from me and not from God, well, I've not served you and I've not led to God being praised. But likewise, if you walk away completely unengaged, feeling like you've had a disturbed mid-morning nap, even if I've been speaking God's Word, I've still not served you and I've not led to God being praised. Except maybe when I finish and you say, Hallelujah. See, my job is to use whatever gifts I can muster to speak God's Word to you, to engage you, not in the end with me, but in the end with the God who speaks, so that you walk away forgetting my stories And hearing that God is saying to you, what gifts should you be using to serve my people so that my name is praised? Now the answers to that are so many. But let me just point out one that's been on my mind this week. Every Sunday, you're served by a humble group of people who put out your chair, who carry in here everything that you can see around you from the shed next door and then wheel out signs and then set up the kids' room and then afterwards clean it all up, clean up the paper we leave behind, clean up the morning tea that we've squished into the ground. Why do they do that? Because they are literally using the strength that God's given them to humbly serve us so that we can gather here and praise God's name. 
And to be honest, when I look who's on that faithful list of people serving us, I think it's not quite right. We've got people on that roster who've been doing it from the beginning, for six years. We've got an over-representation of people who are over 50 and a tiny minority does all that work for us. Now, they very rarely complain and they would be a little bit cranky with me for even drawing attention to them today. But it's worth just pausing and asking ourselves, am I using the literal strength that God has given me faithfully? I'm not trying to motivate you by guilt. I don't ever want you to be motivated by guilt. I want us to be motivated by love. And honestly, I can't think of a better way to love people at TNE than by serving people, by being on setup and pack up. Why? Because it'll keep you humble. There'll always be a need. And it allows people to praise God. Now, I have no doubts that you have many gifts. And I'd love it today if you left considering how you could use those gifts to serve God's people in all sorts of ways, all sorts of ways. But if your back is okay and you're not on that setting up roster, can you ask yourself, can I use my strength that way? And please don't feel awkward about volunteering now. It'll be more awkward if nothing changes. I'd love to be inundated with volunteers. You see, all followers of Jesus are called to humility. Even leaders are called to serve people humbly, especially leaders. Have a look at what Peter tells leaders in verse 2. They're to be eager to serve, not lording it over people, but being examples, knowing that those who are leaders are just shepherds under the chief shepherd. And younger people, there's something for you too. You're called to humility as well. And in verse 5, this looks like submitting to your elders. But we're all called to this. Look at verse 5 and 6. All of you, Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him. He cares for you. We serve a countercultural God. And though our chief shepherd is mighty, he is also humble. He lowers himself to die on a cross to give his life for his sheep. And he calls us to be humble like him. Have you humbled yourself before him? Are you accepting suffering in his name? Are you serving your brothers and sisters? If you've never humbled yourself before God, if you've never given up rule of yourself and let God be your ruler, why not? Why don't you humble yourself today? Turn to Jesus and ask him to be your Lord. See, look at the kind of God he is. We can afford to humble ourselves before him because he cares for us cast all your anxieties on him and at the right time he will lift us up let me pray heavenly father we ask that you would help us to stand firm right till the end lord please help us to be alert 
to recognize that the devil doesn't want that. Lord, help us to realize the risks in our lives that expose us to where we might give up. Lord, help us to see who you are, the kind of God you are, that we can throw all our our anxieties on you knowing that you care for us and even though we might not understand the way you show your care, we can know because of Jesus dying on that cross when he humbled himself for us that you love us and have our best interests at heart. Lord, if we have never humbled ourselves before you for whatever reason, cause us to see our desperate need to do this. Lord, help us to see that otherwise we face your judgment. Help us to hear the gospel message of how Jesus died in our place so we do not have to be judged. And Lord, help us to lower ourselves knowing that you will one day raise us up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.